It's really a pleasure to uh, be here with you again and uh, look forward to being in the Word. Uh, let me just pray. Father, as we look at your Word this morning, we pray that um, uh, your Spirit would be at work uh, in and through your Word, uh, using me, uh, opening our hearts, giving us a sense of um, maybe better lesson and learning than anything I'll be offering here. But uh, Father, we ask for uh, eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to respond. In Jesus' name I pray this. Amen. Uh, the, uh, the morning's topic will be to take us back into the series, Acts of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and we'll pick it up in Acts chapter 17, verses uh, 16 through 34. I had a good time looking at Matt's uh, talk that he gave on December 11th, which was the prior and the context for this talk, and he made a good point that Paul was forced <clears throat> to leave Berea. <clears throat> oh dear, I thought I got a frog in my throat here. I uh, had to leave Berea because of uh, the angry opponents that had come from Thessalonica. So you had been up in Macedonia, which is the region north of Greece. Uh, it's now a country. And they're from Philippi. They moved to, uh, he moved in his ministry to Thessalonica. Uh, Thessalonica, depends on how you want to pronounce it. Uh, we find that there was then pressure that was formed as angry and hostile uh, people from the synagogue, Jewish folks from the synagogue that didn't agree with what he was offering, came and when he was in Berea where there was an openness, all of a sudden opponents have come in just to chase him out of there. So I'm going, were you not discouraged? And the one thing about Paul is that he is never discouraged. He is just bold as a lion. And I think that was a striking piece or a context for all that I wanted to share this morning from the text in chapter 17 where we will pick it up. I liked what Matt said in his talk. He made a great point that some of the Macedonians weren't open to anything, but in Athens they were open to everything. Uh, and almost two extremes of being not at all open to being way too open and never landing anywhere. So that's what we want, want to do is just basically say, Lord, can we uh, uh, have eyes to see and ears to hear? And there's a broad context for this, uh, a book that we've talked about before uh, by Mike Reeves, uh, included in it uh, a quote from a Puritan who I studied for a number of years, uh, Richard Sibbs, and as context for the enthusiasm that we see in Paul's ministry and his life, uh, it starts with God. And Richard Sibbs, um, writing from the time of Shakespeare, wrote, if God had not a communicative spreading goodness, he would never have created the world. Now there you go. Why are we here? because we have a God whose goodness overflows. It's an outflow of who he is. The Father, Son, and Holy Ghost were happy in themselves. Now, the whole issue of the Trinity stuns a lot of people, but the reality is we're relational because he's relational. And we would have no sense to, of making for relationships and families if we were not birthed out of a relational God. We wouldn't know what love is, care is, if there wasn't a God who within his eternal makeup, his being, is eternally a God of communion. 
And so as Sibs points that out, if, they were, if God were not happy in uh, themselves, in himself, and enjoyed one another before the world was, uh, there would have never been a creation nor a redemption. In fact, apart from the fact that God delights to communicate and spread his goodness, there would not have been a creation or redemption. So that's the context for what Paul is doing here. He's, he's excited to share. He's uh, committed to sharing, no matter what the opposition might have been. So what we want to do is talk about the wisdom in Athens that he has to offer. And I'm going to just read this section of Scripture in three different segments and talk through each segment um, in turn. We'll start with verses 16 and uh, carry on down through uh, uh, 21. Uh, while Paul, now while Paul was, uh, in, this is the ESV, was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue uh, with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace every day and with those who happened to be there. Uh, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, um, what, it, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So we'll start there, and we'll find out that the context was that Paul, in his uh, moving uh, to the south, had to go about 200 miles from where he had been in Berea. And now he's down in Athens by himself. He's left behind his partners because by leaving behind uh, Silas and Timothy, they could continue the ministry because it seems that Paul was the focal point of opposition. And he said, okay, I will get out of the way and you guys come and join me when you finish laying the foundations for the church there in uh, uh, Berea. So as Paul is there, this guy has got to be one of the great extroverts in the world. He is going through Athens, and they're starting to say, what is this man teaching? Which is to say, he's out teaching. He's sharing, he's spreading the good news about Jesus Christ, and it, it doesn't fit any of their categories. And so, you know, if you've ever been to Athens, and if you haven't, it's a good bucket list tourist spot to be, to visit. And I've been there, and I had a good time. Went up on to the uh, Parthenon to see the Parthenon and the top there of uh, uh, the, uh, what do they call it? The Acrop Acropolis, which is basically every Greek city has an Acropolis. It's the city that's the top point of the city, Gener generally a fortification and or a temple. And so we have the Parthenon, which is still standing there that goes back. You can see some of the key elements to the Parthenon actually in the British Museum in England. And it's a great place to visit. It's a beautiful place. Uh, and down below from the Parthenon, you can see another uh, rocky uh, 
crag, I don't know what you would call it, an elevation, a mound that's, you know, maybe an acre or so, uh, where they would have, in earlier days, judgments, trials would be held there. But by the time we have Paul coming to town, it's a place where philosophers would gather and argue with each other, debate with each other. And so that's what we get is a little summary here of kind of the cultural wars. Now, what I want to do is talk a little bit about this idea of God spreading goodness and recognize the reality that everyone has an opinion. Uh, some are more forward or, or uh, active in sharing their opinions. Others perhaps are a little quieter and more introvertish. But whatever the case, we have something that I would call the, um, oh, I know, we'll call it the Columbia River Gorge Syndrome. Now, what do I mean by that? Do, do any of you notice that a lot of trees have been tipped over lately? I mean, I'm watching houses that have been cut in half, in particularly in Portland, not so much here, but there are some trees that have been knocked down. And that's because we've got the wonderful wind coming down the Columbia River Gorge. And here's a rule. If the high-pressure zone happens to be out towards the Tri-Cities, and a low-pressure zone happens to be on the coast, maybe Astoria, somewhere there, the wind will just come blasting down 50, 60, 70 miles an hour. Crown point up there, the anometer, whatever you call that thing, is just spinning like crazy. And um, then at other times, the high-pressure zone can be on the coast, and the low-pressure zone can be up, up the river. And because it's a channeled uh, with high walls or cliffs, a channeled area for the wind to really get whipping. And that's what we call, um, a wind is just a movement of air from a high-pressure zone to a low-pressure zone. It's just pouring from one place to the other. Well, so it is in relationships. Some people are high-pressure zone people, and some people are low-pressure zone people. Uh, and you get around some people who are high-pressure zone, and you kind of go, okay, okay, good, just quiet. Yeah, okay, I get it, I get it. Others are low-pressure and tend to be quiet and can may maybe be more readily influenced. Well, Paul was a high-pressure zone person, but he went into another high-pressure zone place called Athens. And what we'll find is that everyone has a tendency to um, have something that they're bragging about. In fact, there's a passage that I think of that we'll actually refer to before we finish our talk this morning uh, that goes to Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. Just I'll allude to it. You don't need to look it up. Where, it's, where it says, Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts uh, boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So there's the high-pressure zone of God. He says, here's what I delight in. And some of you, the people that I've made, have come to delight in lesser things. Wisdom. Now, what is it to delight in wisdom? <clears throat> Guilty as charged. I have books and books and books and books and books and books. I never even got married. I was reading books. <laughs> never had a family. I was reading books. 
I went off and did this degree and that degree and another degree and yet another degree until finally they didn't have any more degrees to give me. Okay, so that's what you call chasing wisdom. How many of you are as excited about wisdom as some of us who do the academic thing? Thankfully, not many. Because we're full of ourselves. We're just inflated. Oh, yeah, well, there's something more I can tell you. Yeah, well, that's fine. Some other time, Ron. But you get it boasting in your wisdom. Now, there were two other categories. Did you catch them? Those who boast in their wealth. Ooh, the stock market, 19% this last year, S&P 500, oh, better, oh, better this, this year because I, my investments, oh, my investments, oh, my money, oh, my resources. Oh, see, that's a high pressure zone, okay? I'm not there. I go, well, good on you. I suspect you'll still die happy with something, even if it's not as much wealth as you really wish you could have. Uh, the wise man boasts of the mighty, mighty man and his might. Ha ha, football today, yesterday, the day before, tomorrow, the day after. Boasting in your might. But guess what? It can be boasting in other kinds of physical skills. Uh, I went to a wonderful um, recital as a young lady, a daughter of one of my close friends, put on a wonderful recital. Well, that, you can boast in your might, your skills, your abilities, your physical prowess. And what we have, uh, our identities form around things that we think we're good at, and we start to boast about those things. And that's where we tend to be expansive. We become spreading people. That's where we spread. And other people will say, well, that's fine, but I've got this to share with you. And it's kind of this debate back and forth. And so the question is, who wins the battle in a high-pressure, low-pressure environment? Who's got the most to give? And so what we find is that Paul brought his spiritual high-pressure zone to Athens, where they had their own love of wisdom. So Paul brought his love of Jesus Christ into that environment, and they're going, you are pretty windy about what you believe in, buddy. We're going to give you a chance to share what you have to say and go for it. Right here, there's the pedestal. There's the big rocky platform, and how many of us, I don't know, 50, 100, 200, I don't know, gathered around to hear what he had to say. And so that's what we've got here is Paul making his presentation, and as he does it, uh, it gives context here that some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and they called him a babbler. Yeah, babble, blah, 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 blah. They, when you're hearing someone speak that, you know, maybe it's not your... F he actually is probably... We know he could speak in Hebrew. Uh, he could speak Aramaic or Hebrew. He could also speak in Greek. So he was bilingual. He probably knew Latin as well. And what we find is that the cultural issues of Athens would have been really Greek. And the Roman Empire was proud of its power, but they weren't so proud of their wisdom. And so they borrowed their wisdom from the Greeks. And the Greek high-pressure zone starts in Athens. So Paul had come right to the center of what really dominated the Roman Empire, the wisdom of the Greeks. And he's giving a counterpoint to their wisdom. 
And what were some of the things they believed? Well, they still are influential today. Whether you know it or not, whether we know it or not, we are deeply influenced by the Greeks. So that, for instance, some of you are Epicureans and you don't even know it. Here's how I know you're Epicurean, because your biggest thrill of this coming year will be your trip to Orlando or your trip down to Disneyland, the lesser of the two, or your trip to Hawaii, or your trip to the place where you're going to find comfort and happiness, pleasant pleasure, winds and trade breezes, because you are Epicurean, which are the forefathers of the hedonists, the search for pleasure, and that life is based on feeling good about comforts in life. The Stoics, on the other hand, are probably more influential in that they said, well, our belief is that God is spread through everything and that everyone has a little bit of God in them, a spark of the divine. And that within that divinity, there's a purposefulness that everyone is stuck with whatever is their fate. So they were fatalists. And they said, the thing that we think is important is to use the mind and the will. The mind is where you touch base with God. Everyone has the divine within. And frankly, a lot of Christian theology is shaped more by Stoicism than by the Bible. The idea that there is the, everyone has the trinity or that there's an image of God within every soul. Well, the Bible isn't so clearly saying that we all have the image of God. We were created in God's image. Male and female, he created them. And with that comes the role of the Holy Spirit, the Trinity as the basis for the image of God. So we'll talk about, well, everyone has the image of God. Well, maybe the Stoic version, but not necessarily the biblical version of the image of God. So there's lots of conversations to be had. And you see where Paul had really jumped into the lion's den here as he's bringing in Christian beliefs. The Stoics also believe that the mind needed to lead the body by acts of willpower. The mind and the will were key. So the key is good Bible study, if we're going to be Stoic Christians, and good discipline groups to overcome faulty emotions and affections. That's Stoicism. The fact is the Bible starts with the heart. The love of God poured out into our hearts, Romans 5, 5. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind. But when we get to Stoic Christianity, suppress that. Whoa, no, no, it's the mind and the will. I'm sorry, that's just Stoicism penetrating and still floating around in Christianity. So Paul is coming along really ready to push back and say, I've got a little breezed bow in your direction. And so he gets his chance to talk and I should follow my outline here or we're going to be in serious trouble. So the uh, next part we go to is 1722 through 31, where we find that Paul offered an alternative power by God's self-disclosure in Christ. Let me read that. So we have Paul addresses the Areopagus. So Paul, standing in the midst of uh, the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way that you're very religious, for as I passed along and observed your objects of uh, the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of the heaven and earth, 
does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation and mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Or even as one of your, uh, some of your poets have said, uh, for we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him, that man Jesus, from the dead. Well, that's a mouthful. How many of the Athenians are going, oh yeah, we knew that? <laughs> Not a chance. Oh, they're all going, you believe what? You believe that Zeus and Jupiter, the things that we've sort of abandoned in light of our commitment to Aristotle and Zeno and to Socrates and all the other great minds, you've got someone that is saying, oh, we've got a God who trumps all of that. And you just call him the unknown God. Well, I'm here to tell you who the unknown God is. He's the true God. And he has come to us in a man, and that man calls you to repent. In other words, you're wrong. Now, you can see why Paul might have been chased out of other locations. When you come in and say, I hear and understand what you have to say, but you're wrong. Change your mind. Repent. It's time to change. But Paul is doing this out of love. He's not doing this out of, I'm bigger and stronger than you are. He's saying, if you're wrong, the best thing I can do is say that you're wrong and hope that you'll change direction because you're headed in the wrong direction right now. And let me offer to you the correct and proper direction. So Paul was offering the love of Jesus, and he says, let me fill the space where you seem to have some room for movement. Call it the unknown God. He's unknown to you. And what he does is he takes this idea of two of the philosophers of the day, Epimenides and Eratus. We had two quotations in there. We know who those philosophers were. He's quoting from some of the Greek literature. So Paul comes in there not ignorant of their positions, not ignorant of their views, informed. He then wants to inform them of what they don't know and say, I, I, I know that you have ideas, but I'm here to offer you something bigger and better than that. And what he does is he talks about the moral issues as we picked up, and he's talking about um, times of ignorance that God is willing to overlook, but he can't, commands everyone everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Catch the moral issue. He said, what he's going to do is allow the Holy Spirit to remind people, you know what? You're plastic. You, you posture. You show yourself as a sound and solid person. But within, you're really, you've got some corruption issues. 
and you're not being honest, and it's time to repent. So what Paul is really doing here is that without quite explaining the role of the Holy Spirit, he's unleashing the Holy Spirit. It says, I'm here to tell you that there's a true God, a bigger God, a greater God, the creator God. And he has come to us through a man. And this man calls on you to repent and to get to know him as the true God. Now, what we'll find out is that he will also teach that the father who sent the son is one with the father. The son and the father are one and united by the Holy Spirit. And this communion of one God in three distinctions, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is active in life and love and truth and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness, all the qualities of God that will not be present in a human that doesn't really know God, who's trying to live independently from God and not enjoying the reality of God's love and loving kindness because God is love. And he's saying, so repent and come to the God who offers himself to you and enjoy that reality, this alternative power. So as we have the wind blowing up and down the gorge, right now the question is, which wind are we going to have the wind blowing, east or west? Is it going to be Christianity or is it going to be an Athenian response of repentance and saying, well, tell us more about this God? And what we find is Paul presents this content They respond to him after they've heard him. And uh, we pick it up here. Now, when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some people joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So as we, we find this event unfolds, Paul has worked with this unleashing of the Christian story, but do you notice where he pivoted and where the story quit receiving an audience? Let's go back to that passage again. He said, He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, we could say that one person's point of view doesn't necessarily overcome another person's point of view. It's just a matter of, okay, you've got your view, I've got mine. In fact, that's where the world is today. We're now in a period of what we call postmodern openness, a non-foundational approach to everyone has their point of view, and you have yours, and I have mine, and don't you, you know, get in the way. As long as I have a, you know, freedom to think what I think, you can't tell me I'm wrong. Well, Paul is saying, no, you are wrong. And the reason for that is because there's a touchstone of historical evidence as to who's right and who's wrong. And that's the resurrection. Now, the question about the resurrection is really pivotal. I don't hear many people talking about the resurrection these days, but it's absolutely the historical bedrock of Christianity. There was a man who was crucified 2,000 years ago, and he didn't stay dead. He came back to life after three days, and that stunned his followers who were ready to cave in until he came back to life and said, okay, here I am. Life couldn't, death couldn't hold me. I'm alive. 
And that's why there's so much power in Paul's breeze, his outgoingness, his willingness to extend himself and to be chased from place to place because he said, I know my Redeemer and he lives. He's alive now and he will hold us all accountable. Now, it's interesting, my, my interest in history goes back to even to the point of going back to Israel a few times. I went and lived there for most of a year once, lived near Afula, which is across the street from Nain, where Jesus raised a man from the dead, and up the hill was Nazareth, okay? So I lived there and walked, and it became far more real to me. I went and did an archaeological excavation, and I got to do the underwater archaeology, where we uh, found, I took my glove off, we, we found the wooden forms for Herod's harbor in Caesarea, where he had shipped this pumice, this lime combination concrete to create an artificial harbor with concrete that still lasts till today. You can go to Caesarea Maritima, and I was scuba diving, and we found under the sand some of the wooden forms in the days of Herod before Jesus was born, some of the wooden forms that had been used to pour the concrete to build the harbor. So some of us will think of Christianity as stories far, far away, long, long ago in a distant place that never really existed, and the answer is no, it really did exist. And I couldn't help but think that the carpenter who built that wood that I touched was the carpenter who taught the guy who taught Joseph because uh, Nazareth is only about 30 miles away from Caesarea Maritima. And carpentry is the skill that you pass on chain link-wise. And that would have been about the time frame. And Jesus learned carpentry from someone who probably had worked at Caesarea or by extension, that was a real time and place. We're talking real time and place, and we've got real history. So, for instance, um, one of the books that I read when I was a young Christian that I thought was really useful made the point about the resurrection, how important it is. It is. He said, you know, the fact of the Christian church is that its confidence is built on the resurrection, and there are three facts that we should keep in mind if you have any doubts about the resurrection. The first one is the Christian day. What is today, Sunday? It's the first day of the week. Why would a Jew switch from Shabbat, which is the Friday-Saturday, to start worshiping on Sunday? Because it's the day of the resurrection. And that caused a huge shift, and that created controversy. Go to Romans 14, because there's, should we, shouldn't we worship on the Shabbat? No, because Jesus was raised on Sunday. And that's why Sunday is the day we worship. That started 2,000 years ago. It started because of the resurrection. We also have the Christian church. The Christian church grew despite opposition. If you wanted to get killed, become a Christian for almost the first 100 years. All of the early disciples were prepared to die because of their faith in Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead who they talked to, they met, they walked with and talked with him. And they said, we've got to share this because everyone else thinks death is the end of things. And the answer is it's the entry into true life. And to be raised from the dead is to go into what we were made for, to live forever with a God who created us 
with his loving kindness, ready to bring us to be the bride of Christ for all of us who believe. And the third one is the Christian book. Well, the Christian New Testament is actually a series of writings, and there's six different witnesses within it, different writers. We've got James and Paul and Peter, and every one of them is talking about what? The resurrection. And they overlapped with the resurrection, and they're eyewitnesses, ready to say, we have met and talked to the raised Jesus. And that's why we're prepared to die as necessary, because we know that death is not a big issue. Life is beyond death, and that's what we are looking forward to, life with Christ. So the resurrection was a great pivot point, and we even, some would say, well, aren't you just using documents that are within internal Christian belief systems? Well, okay, so I'll bring you in, a you know, historian that I am, I'm just tragic that I unleash a historian on you, New Year's Day. So here's a, a document that is available in any, any resource you can go online and chase down Pliny writing to Trajan. Trajan became one of the emperors of Rome. And Pliny was a district or regional supervisor, governor. And he's writing about the problem they have with Christianity. And this is about a, a year 112 he's writing this. And as he's writing it, he says, well, he says, after... Checking out these people, I'll just pick it up midway. After the, the conclusion of this ceremony, it's their custom to depart and meet again to take food, but it was ordinary and harmless food, and they had ceased this practice after my edict in which, in accordance with your orders, I forbade any secret societies. I thought it the more necessary, therefore, to find out what truth there is in, what, in this by uh, applying torture to two maidservants who were called deaconesses. And I found after torturing them that they held to nothing but a depraved and extravagant superstition. How about the resurrection? And that I post, therefore postponed my examination and had recourse to you for consultation. The matter seemed to me to justify my consulting you, especially on account of the number of these imperiled. That is a lot of people being charged with Christianity, and they're imperiled. They're worthy of death according to our current rules. And oh, they didn't seem to be such bad people, he's basically saying here. Well, let me pick it up here. Um, For many persons of all ages and classes and of both sexes are being put into peril by accusation, and this will go on. This contagion of superstition has spread not only in the cities, but in the villages and the rural districts as well, and yet it seems capable of being checked and set right. There is no doubt, no shadow of doubt that the temples, which have been almost totally abandoned, are beginning to have people come back again. This is a historian. This is a governor writing to the fact that Roman beliefs were starting to collapse in the face of the breeze, the wind of the truth of the resurrection and the truth of Christianity while people were being killed. And he's saying, should we kill all these nice people? They're not doing anything that I can tell that's really bad, except they've got this belief in the resurrection. Where's that today? How strong is the Christian belief in the resurrection that we're just spreading it wherever we go? I think the breeze has gone down to a little whispery, preacherish kind of a thing that only people on the platform talk about. And I think it's time for us in the new year to say, 
I need a little more Zoom investment and energy, so show me more of yourself, Jesus, because unless I see you and recognize your presence by your Spirit, I don't have much to talk about, like Paul did. Okay? So you see, I'm turning this into a start of the year kind of a sermon, even though it's not meant to be. So you have this whole set of dismissive people there in Athens. Do you sense that there was a big, booming repentance and movement of lots of people in Athens coming to faith? No, because the love of wisdom is really tough to beat. Wise, people who pursue, are convinced that they're wise are just impossible to overcome. I know. Also wealthy people and also people who are successful because they have power and influence and that sort of thing. But you know what? Paul recognized that Athens wasn't maybe the best place to stay. He didn't stay there long. So next, anticipating next Sunday, he moved on to Corinth, which is about, I don't know, 40, 50 miles. It's long. I took a bus from Corinth to Athens years ago, and it was about a half a day trip jugging along. And just uh, so directly to the west of Athens, you could get to um, Corinth. And uh, let me just mention that in Corinth, Paul had a problem there too, because the church, after he had established the church and stayed there for two years, so Athens, he's just there for maybe a week or two or three, and then he goes to Corinth and says, this is a better place to work. And he starts to minister there, and it starts to bring about real transformation. He gets kicked out of the synagogue. He always starts in the synagogue, and then he goes and starts, once he's chased away from the synagogue, uh, he begins to teach more widely. And as he's doing that, he builds a church. And now he's writing to the church because the divisions have started to form over the question of who's polished and who's not polished. And apparently Paul was being charged with being rather unpolished compared to Apollos and really not worth following because he's not as sharp a figure. And so he's writing to the divided Corinthians and as he writes to them, we'll pick it up here in uh, verse 17 of 1 Corinthians. So this is years after the event that we're looking at here in Acts. Uh, For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Do you hear him reflecting back on his response that he received in Athens? He was not coming with display of great wisdom, but with an honesty and integrity and power of the message. So let's keep reading. God, Christ didn't send me to baptize, and lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That's where Jesus was crucified, which led to the resurrection. And for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is, as it is written from Isaiah 29, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the describe? Where is the debater of this age? Think of Areopagus there. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. 
it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews, the synagogue, demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Jesus crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called by called by God, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even these things which are not to bring to nothing that uh, things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of, of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, that I cited earlier, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, here's the passage. Here's what I take from the passage and we're gonna, where we wrap up this morning. God likes people who don't think they're very clever. God works with people who are just plain ordinary. He likes people who are not proud and stuffy and full of themselves with power, with wisdom, with wealth. He says, no, I'm ready to work with those of you who are not so full of yourself because you're less resistant to what I have to offer. And that's where the Corinthians finally responded. Not much of a response in Philippi, nor in Macedonia, with Thessalonica, chased out of Berea, goes to Athens, and finally he settles into the worksman-like commercial centers of Corinth, and there he finds people coming to faith and believing in Jesus because they're just more open to the role of the Holy Spirit saying, I've got something to tell you, the breeze of the Spirit moving into a soul and saying, come and listen. God loves you. Taste and see the Lord is good. So that's our message for the morning, that Paul came into Athens and he left Athens. And we still love the wisdom of Athens. We still love philosophy. I love scripture. So here's my invitation. It's the new year. I like Bible read-throughs. If you want to have something to come out like a breeze, so you've got to have something to talk about. Well, this is a good resource of things to talk about. And I found, for instance, down at Starbucks, the Riverstone Starbucks down here by the QSC, I have a group of people there that know who I am. I'm the preacher. I'm the evangelical. Hey, you're an evangelical. What about the evangelicals? You know, the, the, the haters, those brutal evangelicals. Wah, you seem to be smart. How come you're an evangelical? Well, I'll tell you why I'm an evangelical. Let me explain to you. I said, I don't know why sexuality is such a big issue to you. I've got sexuality. You got, I don't care. I'm not sitting around here trying to be a policeman on people's sexuality, but I'll tell you what. There's something much, much bigger than issues of sexuality. And we're not talking about those issues. You know, the question of who God is. You know, the issue of abortion. You don't like, the, let me tell you something. We're just divided as a country because you cannot put fetuses into a blender and claim to be a righteous people. 
You can't do that. I'm sorry. Oh, you're the first guy that's ever pushed back on us. But I don't do it with the standard chatter. I just go in there with a conviction that this is God is the one who forms an infant and a, chi- a child in a mother's womb. How can you do that? And we have a real conversation. So they know who I am down there. I'd never get any work done if I went and visited with them all the time. But the fact is, the world is ready to have conversations with us. Do we have anything to offer? So here's my encouragement to you. The 100-day challenge. I've got Rick sitting here. Rick, how many times have... Well, anyway, Rick has read through the Bible a few times. I read through the Bible with him. When, when did we do that? About 20 years ago? We read through the Bible in three or four months. And we've been doing it ever since then. He read it through with his wife. She's here too. The family's here. But the reality is, reading through the Bible fills you with something to talk about. And how about a 100-day Bible read-through? That's about 35 or 40 minutes a day. And where you, you, you actually turn your, your, you know, your phone on, you know, get an app with the Bible, and run that app at one and a half speed, because that's the normal talking speed. And then trace through your Bible. I'd say get an open Bible and mark it up. Oh, oh, this isn't, oh, I've never heard this. Oh, oh, I heard this on a sermon. And engage it because that's the Spirit of God ready to blow into your heart and life. I'm done preaching. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your love revealed through Jesus Christ, uh, supported by the resurrection available to us through the scriptures and by the witness of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the church, Christmas, Christ, Christian day, the Christian, Christian church, the Christian book. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.